listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. So today we are back in the letter of James. And I hope by now that two-word summary of this letter is working its way down into your bones. The entire letter of James could be summarized with these two words, faith works. And again, kids, if you're listening or watching this morning, you can just say that right there where you are to your parents. Faith works. This is James's point. He tells us throughout this letter the various ways that faith works. Faith works in suffering. Faith works in temptation. Faith works in our words. As Jimmy talked about last week, faith works in wisdom. And as we turn the page to chapter 4 of James, James has yet another way that faith works. Faith works in our fights. Faith works in our fights. Or you could say it this way. Faith makes us peacemakers. This is what faith does. It's working in us. It makes us peacemakers. So let me take a step back from this text and sort of set the stage so that we can see this text more clearly. Uh, Just think about the world for a moment. Uh, The world is a relational mess. It is a relational mess. Human beings fight. We just can't stop fighting. It's like we love to fight. Relational conflict is a universal human reality, and our world bears the scars of that universal human reality. In their book, The Lessons of History, Will and Ariel Durant begin with a chapter called History and War, and it opens with these two sentences. They say, war is one of the constants of history and has not diminished, war has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. Those are two of the saddest sentences I have ever read. There there is an innate propensity in the human heart to war, to fight, to be in conflict with one another. And you see this on the macro level, nation against nation, but you also see it on the micro or the personal level. Uh, human beings at war uh, with one another. There's not a person alive who has not felt uh, the the pain of relational conflict. Uh, You have felt that. I have felt that. We have all dealt our share of relational pain, and we've all received our share of relational pain. Now, how do you explain that? Why is the world such a relational mess? Well, here's the Bible's answer to that. The world is a relational mess because of sin. It's because of sin. This is Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is the most catastrophic moment in the history of the world. The day our first parents bit into the forbidden fruit, war erupted. When sin walked into the room of God's creation, war came with it. Now, since Genesis chapter 3, every human life post that moment, a relational pain now haunts every one of our relationships. You feel that? I feel that? It's, in, it's embedded into every human relationship. The play out of Genesis chapter 3 is so illuminating. If you remember back to Genesis 3, God, after they have rebelled against him, God confronts our first parents, Adam and Eve. And when confronted, Adam blames his wife, Eve. God, she gave me the fruit. She made me eat it. And then he blames God. God, you're the one that gave me that woman. And then Eve, when the spotlight comes onto her, she blames the snake. 
And this is just a precursor for the relational chaos that would follow. It gets worse. Adam and Eve have sons, Cain and Abel. Eight verses into chapter four, here's what we read in Genesis, the book of Genesis. And when they, talking about Cain and Abel, were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. A few generations later, Isaac has sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau lived at war with one another, brothers at war with one another most of their lives. Uh, Jacob goes on to have 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you remember that story, uh, 10 uh, of the 12 sons, uh, they conspired against Joseph, their younger brother, uh, to kill Joseph. And then they ended up settling for selling him into slavery. The Old Testament world, the world that is the Old Testament, is full of relational chaos. It's a relational mess. Uh, But relational problems aren't just in the Old Testament. They're also in the New Testament. James introduces us to the relational mess of the New Testament. He, he says two times in these first two verses of chapter four, he, he uses the word fight twice and the word quarrel twice. Those two words both show up twice in the first two verses. Now notice those words in verse one. It's not singular fight or singular quarrel. It's, no, it's fights and quarrels. It's plural. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that these problems that are happening in this church that James is writing to, these problems aren't occasional. The relational mess, the relational problems are not occasional. They are chronic. These people that James are writing to, they're not new to relational wars. They are veterans of relational wars. They have been doing this. This is, this is ongoing wars. This is wars that have, that have been raging for a while now. They're chronic problems, not occasional problems. Now, it's funny when I hear people talk about the New Testament church, oftentimes people romanticize it. But I think John Stott is right in his commentary of the book, or on the book of Acts. He says this about the New Testament church. He said, it wasn't all romance and righteousness. James agrees. It was not all romance and righteousness. It was also war, ongoing war, chronic wars, many wars. Trenches are dug, weapons are readied, stations are manned. And this isn't isolated just in this letter of the New Testament, just in this church of the New Testament. Uh, Think about uh, Paul's letter to the church of Galatia. He is addressing all sorts of relational strife in this church. Uh, Then you get to Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, and Paul says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. There are people problems in the church of Galatia. Uh, Think about Paul's uh, letter to the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth is a relational mess. It is a relational disaster there. Or how about the the church in Philippi? Uh, The church in Philippi is in a lot of ways uh, the bright spot of all the churches of the New Testament. But even this church had relational problems. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul calls out two ladies who have sort of dug trenches against one another and declared war against one another. He says in Philippians chapter 4 verse 2, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, that is one way to get your name in the Bible, right? Uh, to be feuding with another person, doing enough damage in your local church that Paul calls you out by name in the Bible. 
This is what's happening here. He says, Euodia, Syntyche, I'm begging you, agree with one another in the Lord. Come together in Jesus. Now, I think it's illuminating to think about this moment with Paul. Paul's quick to address conflict among churches because Paul knows churches don't die. Churches don't have their, their growth stunted because of external pressures. Churches die and they lose their fruitfulness because of internal strife. So Paul is quick to address these problems. And if even the best church in the New Testament had these sort of people problems, the church in Philippi, if even the best church in the New Testament had these sort of problems, we can assume every church is going to have these sorts of problems. Our church family, every church family, we shouldn't be pleased with that but we shouldn't be surprised by that either. We should see conflict as an opportunity for our faith to work, for our faith to work even in our fights, for our faith to to move us and make us peacemakers. I love how one pastor put it. He said, the next best thing to having a church without conflict is having one that knows how to resolve it in a Christ-exalting way. Yes to that. And that's the journey we're taking this morning. How do we solve conflict in a Christ-exalting way? So here's what I want to do today. I want to take this passage in two parts. There's a why, why conflict happens, and then a way through conflict. So why does conflict happen? And what is a way through conflict? So we'll take part one. Why conflict happens. It's interesting, this passage, because it sheds no light on the circumstances around the conflict. James sheds no light on that. It's as if James doesn't care about the occasion of the conflict. Now, why is that? Well, I think this is the reason. Uh, The occasion wasn't important to James because the occasion wasn't the cause. The, The occasion did not cause the conflict. And James, in this text, wants to clarify the cause, not the occasion. Now, why would James want to clarify that? Well, I think James knows that anytime we're in conflict, we have a tendency to obsess over the occasion of the conflict, all the while ignoring and forgetting about the cause of the conflict. So James wants to to shed light on and offer insight into why conflicts happen. And he says two things about the why of conflict. And the first one you see in verses one and two, Uh, James says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What is James's point here? The point is this, disordered desires create conflict. Disordered desires create create conflict. Now, that's amazing insight. He's saying that the problem, our relational problems, the problem we have with other people, our conflicts, it's not, our problem isn't something outside of us. It's not them or that person. No, our problem is inside of us. James says it three times here. Your passions are at war. Your passions inside of you are at war. He says, you desire and you do not have. You covet and cannot obtain. 
That's James's diagnosis of our relational problems, our, our conflicts. Your passions are at war. You desire and do not have. You covet and you cannot obtain. Now, check that with how you diagnose your relational problems, uh, conflicts in your life. Uh, think about the last time you were at war with another person. You were in a conflict with another person. And imagine someone coming to you and asking you the question, what, what's the cause of that fight or that quarrel or this war that you're in? What, what's the cause? Uh, what's the cause of that? If you're anything like me, before you have even thought about your answer, the answer comes out of your mouth. And when someone asks, what is the cause of this conflict? The answer is, they are. <laughs> that person is. Do you know her? That's our answer. It just comes out before we can even think about it. But James is saying here, no, the problem is not out there. James's point here is that your biggest problem is the civil war raging in your own heart. Your passions are at war. You desire and you do not have. You covet and cannot obtain. He's saying that's the problem. Listen to David Pallison address this. He's an author. He's uh, counseled people for the last several decades of his life. And listen to how he says it. He says, one of the joys of biblical ministry comes when you are able to turn on the lights in another person's dark room. He goes on to say, people usually don't see their desires and lusts. Most of the time, we do everything we can not to see those things. He goes on to say, souls are cured as they are disturbed by the light of God's analytic gaze and then comforted by the love that shed substitutionary blood to purchase the inexpressible gift of the gospel. He goes on to say, I have yet to meet a couple locked in hostility and all the accompanying fear, self-pity, hurt, and self-righteousness. I've yet to meet a couple locked in hostility who really understood and reckoned with their motives. Now, that, that should give us just a moment to pause over that and think on that. I've yet to meet a couple locked in hostility who really understood and reckoned with their motives. He goes on to say, James 4, 1 through 3 teaches that cravings underlie conflicts. Why do you fight? It's not because my wife or my husband or my friend or, or that person, it's not the reason. He, he goes on to say, why do you fight? It's because of something about you, something in you. Couples, he says, who see what rules them. And then listen to the examples that he gives. Cravings for affection, uh, cravings for attention, Cravings for power, for vindication, cravings or desires for control and comfort in a hassle-free life. He says, couples who see what rules them can repent and find God's grace made real to them and then learn how to make peace. Now, that summary, cravings underlie uh, conflicts. That's a good summary of James 4, 1 through 3. Our disordered desires create conflict. Now, what are cravings and disordered desires? In a lot of ways, it comes in two forms. One form is wanting wrong things. That's the more obvious form. But there is a less obvious form. It's not just wanting wrong things. Our disordered desires can also want the right things, but in the wrong ways. 
So we can want the wrong things, that's obvious, but we can also want good and right things, but we want those things in the wrong ways. And and James is saying here, what lies underneath conflict is you want. And, And when you don't get what you want, you go to war over it. That's what's underneath conflict, James is saying. You know, little kids are so funny to watch. And they're, they're funny because they haven't yet learned how to sin in subtle and sophisticated ways. They just haven't learned the art of that yet. They're just, they sin a lot, but they're just not good at it yet. So they're, they're comical to watch. I remember when Caleb was about two years old. He's uh, my middle child. When Caleb was about two, he was playing with a friend, and that friend had something he wanted. Now, every parent knows what happens next, right? Uh, so Caleb walked over to the friend who had the thing he wanted. He, he tried to steal the thing out of his friend's hand. And his friend looked at him and said, no, no, you're not going to steal that from me. And you know what happens next. War erupted on our living room floor. And James is saying, you don't just grow out of that. What's in every two-year-old is still in you, but in more subtle and sophisticated ways right now, creating conflict. This is the point that James is making. You, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. I was just thinking about this yesterday. A few weeks ago, I had grabbed my Bible. I'd set in like the chair that I love to read my Bible in in our house. I just poured some coffee and I'd opened up the Bible. I'd taken a sip of coffee, uh, coffee and it was as if heaven was coming down to earth. It was amazing. And I just, in that moment, had a, uh, a want for communing with the Lord. And about that time, Eva, my youngest, runs into the room and needs something from me. Now, how dare her need something from me while I'm reading the Bible, right? And so I snapped at her. Just in a moment of, of um, frustration, words came out of my mouth that lacked kindness, that, that were harsh. Now, now, what is that? That's the two-year-old showing itself. It's James saying, you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. And listen, Bible reading is a good thing. I hope you want to read your Bible. I hope you love coffee and I hope you enjoy the whole kind of moment that is. But we can want the right things in the wrong ways. And when we want the right things in the wrong ways, it leads to war. This is, this is James' point. Now, I want to put in one qualifier into James chapter four. And the qualifier comes from Paul and you find it in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Paul says there, if possible, two huge words, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, if possible. Now those two words, if possible, exist because Paul knows peace isn't always possible. Now, think about most conflicts in our life. Most conflicts, there is, both sides are full of faults. It's very easy on both sides to identify where disordered desires and relational chaos is happening in in both parties. So in most conflicts, there are faults on both sides. But this verse exists in the Bible to show us that that's not true of every conflict. Some conflicts are one-sided. 
And peace can only be made when one side lays down their sin, owns it, and repents of it. Now, uh, let me be clear there. The impossibility of peace should never be because we have closed the door. No, no, faith makes us peacemakers. And peacemakers are, are, come to every relationship that lacks peace with an open heart. Sincerely wanting peace, desiring peace, praying for Jesus to give the breakthroughs that could lead to peace. Peacemakers, uh, in every sort of relationship that, that doesn't have peace, peacemakers are always asking. Maybe it's every couple of weeks or every couple of months or every uh, few times a, a year. We're asking, what could I do right now to, to create peace in this relationship? What would be a step I could take? So the impossibility of peace shouldn't ever be on our side. We should never close the door of peace. But Paul is saying with these two words, if possible, that, that sometimes peace is a one-sided issue. The other side has to come to the table with us if peace is going to be had. Okay, now with that caveat and qualifier uh, said, I now want you to forget the qualifier. Here's the reason. James doesn't mention the qualifier. James is actually not, in this particular text, interested in the qualifier. James is assuming that part of the conflict that we're in, or the next one that we're in, part of that conflict is ours to own. And we should assume until we have scraped the very bottom of our heart in community with others, and we need to make sure we've got people in on that, helping us see kind of our role in conflict. Because when we're in conflict, it's really hard to see that conflict clearly. We should assume until we have scraped the bottom of our hearts in community that, that we have a part to play in that. There's fault on our side too. This is Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. He says, hey, before you, before you obsess over taking the tiny specks out of their eye, before you, before you start worrying about their specs, make sure you take the huge log out of your own eye. Now, now what is that? that? That is an invitation from Jesus to look in the mirror in conflict, uh, to, to take a good long look over our motives, our cravings, our disordered desires that create war. And here's the, the thing that's true about you and me. Over time, we learn how to sin in subtle and sophisticated ways. They're so sophisticated that at times we even need help to see those sort of subtle ways that we are sinning. So we have to ask Jesus for, for help in seeing those things. Not just the overt actions, but the more subtle attitudes and demeanors and postures that disordered desires create in us leading to conflict. This is what peacemaking, a heart of a peacemaker does. It's, it's open and willing to take a good, long, lingering look down into our heart and the motives that reside there. So James is saying here that disordered desires create conflict, but that's not the only thing he says about conflict. He goes on to say that under those disordered desires is a dysfunctional relationship to Jesus. That under disordered desires, there is a dysfunctional relationship to Jesus. And you see that in their prayer life in verse 3, or really the lack thereof. In verse 3, James says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Now, that way of praying is not, it's not supplication. It's not asking things with an open heart to Jesus. That is manipulation. 
That is trying to bend God to your own purposes. And God doesn't play along with that type of praying, manipulation. These people aren't wanting more of Jesus. They want to use Jesus to get more of the things they want. That's the praying that you see here. It's a dysfunctional relationship to Jesus. And and you see that dysfunction most clearly in in verse 4. When James says this, you adulterous people, you adulterous people. That's with an exclamation point. That's James screaming, you adulterous people. James is saying here, under, under their disordered desire was adultery. They had left Jesus for other lovers. James is saying here that deep down under our wars, our fights, our quarrels, you'll find competing loves in our heart. You'll find that something or someone else has captured our hearts. This is the point that James is making, that that worldliness, loving things of this world more than Jesus, worldliness leads to wars. Uh, Years ago, I remember reading a letter that John Newton, John Newton is the the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. I remember reading this letter that John Newton had written to a friend. And it's always rung true to me, these couple of sentences that I read years ago. He said, when people are right with God, they are apt to be hard on themselves and easy on others. But when they are not right with God, when, when, when they're loving things above God, really just wanting to use God to get the things that they want, when they aren't right with God, they are easy on themselves and hard on others. Now, I don't know if John Newton was basing those couple of sentences on this passage in James chapter four, but he could have. This is what James is saying here. James is is reminding us that if you're in conflict right now, he's just inviting you to to receive this wisdom, to take a good long look at your motives, at your loves. Are there competing loves in your heart? Has Jesus dropped down here and other loves elevated to, to way up there in your heart? Faith works in our fights. And faith works by giving us a willingness to look in the mirror to consider our motives, to consider what's buried deep in our hearts, to to deal with the logs in our eyes before we run after and try to remove the specks in others. And I would just encourage you, if you're in conflict this morning, you've got people that you're at war with right now, I would just encourage you, you could even do this right now where you are, to grab a pen and a paper and get before the Lord and just Ask, ask the Father to show you what your motives look like. What is buried in your heart? Where are there disordered desires and cravings? Just plead with the Father to show you. You know what the Lord loves to do? To talk to his sons and daughters about these things. To show us what's inside of us. The Lord loves to do that. The next time you're at war with someone, just remember these words from James chapter 4. Allow these words to be a mirror to remind you to linger long over your motives, to take a good long look at your heart for disordered desires, for loves that have, that have been elevated above your love of Jesus in your life. James is saying, this is the reason for conflict. This is the why of conflict. This is what lies behind conflict. Now part two, a way through conflict, a way through conflict. 
And to see the way through conflict, I want to actually leave the letter of James and go back to Matthew chapter 5 and to look at the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, you find the Beatitudes, and they are a clear picture of how faith works. And this is one way that faith works. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, not the trigger happy. He doesn't say blessed are, are the people who dig trenches and start sort of lobbing Twitter grenades at other people. It's not those people. No, he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Faith makes us peacemakers. But peacemaking isn't the only way we can respond to conflict. There's actually three ways we can respond to conflict. And one of those three ways is peace faking. When we talk about peacemaking, I often worry about a misconception. It's easy for peacemaking to be confused with appeasing. But peacemaking is not the same thing as appeasing sin. The Bible does not call us to make peace at all costs. There are moments where peace can only be made when sin is addressed and wounds are tended to. That is the mechanisms and means to peacemaking. We actually have a group of cultural axioms as a staff. They're just ways that we as a staff want to operate and want to live. It's a way we want our church to operate, our church to live. And one of those axioms concerns conflict. And we say it this way. We, when we're in the middle of conflict, we want to run to the tension. We want to run to the tension. But peace fakers don't run to the tension. A peace faking runs from the person they're in conflict with. A peace faker goes silent. They retreat. They stop showing up. A peace fakers run from the person we're in conflict with. And here's the reason we're doing that. We're running from them because we want them to pay. That's the intent. We want them to pay. So a peace faker is rehearsing the wounds. They're stewing in anger. They're constantly clubbing the person in their heart. All the while, bitterness and resentment is growing in them. Uh, maybe you could think of it this way. Peace fakers take the passive-aggressive approach uh, when they're hurt or they're sinned against. Uh, rather than running to the tension, they retreat. Uh, e- emotionally, they retreat. Uh, relationally, they retreat. Physically, even, uh, they'll retreat. Now, think about your own life. Is this your pattern? Is this your tendency when conflict erupts, when war erupts in your life? Are you a peace faker? Uh, Listen to David Pallison again in his book, Good and Angry. Uh, Listen to him describe a peace faker. He says, quiet brooding, defensive withdrawal, judgmental thoughts, low-grade irritability, a critical attitude, avoiding outright conflict, indifference to repairable wrongs. These are just my less dramatic brands of an anger problem. My personal tendency has never been to go on the offensive with frenzied hot war. I've specialized more in keeping a safe distance from conflicts and if necessary, engaging in a cold war. That is a peace faker. Now, again, just ask yourself, is this my tendency in conflict? Is my tendency not to run to the tension, but to silently and slowly back away from the tension? Passively aggressive, uh, being kind of that passive aggressive approach, uh, running from that person all the while making them pay. 
That's a peace faker. But we can also be a peace breaker. There's peace faking and peace breaking. Now, this is the more obvious sort of way of breaking peace. It's the other end of the stick. While peace faking takes the passive aggressive approach, peace breaking just loses the passive and they just go with the aggressive approach. They run after the person. It is not a cold war. No, weapons are drawn and bombs are dropping, right? Where peace fakers run from the person to make them pay, peace breakers run to that person to make them pay. Uh, Peace breakers, they don't run from the tension, but they run to the tension. But it's not for the sake of peace. It's for the sake of payment. They want their pound of flesh from that person. Now, when you're thinking about breaking peace, one of the sort of subtle ways that this can happen is when we create unholy trinities. Now, there's a holy trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We love that trinity. We don't like the unholy trinity. And here's how you create an unholy trinity. This is how it happens. I have a problem with person A. But rather than going to person A about the problem I have with them, I go to person B and I air all of my grievances about person A to person B. As soon as I've opened my mouth and talked to person B about person A, I have formed an unholy trinity. Now, we're all prone to to doing this. It is so much easier to talk about a person than it is to go and actually talk to that person. Right, But this is one deadly way we deal with conflict. It's one of the ways that we break peace. And you have likely been on both sides of this, both creating an unholy trinity and being pulled into an unholy trinity. You know that moment. You've had that moment when someone comes to you and rather than talking to the person they have a conflict with, they are talking to you about the person they have a conflict with. We've all been there. And to help our church family with unholy trinities, because they break peace. They make peace impossible in any place. And to help our church with unholy trinities, we just want to invite you into what we call the 24-hour rule. Here's the 24-hour rule. If a person comes up to you and they're talking to you about the person they have a grievance with, the moment they do that, a 24-hour clock happens. The 24-hour rule gets enacted. And the 24-hour rule is simple. They're now on the clock. They have 24 hours to go and talk to the person they have a problem with or you, the the third part of that unholy trinity that they have brought in, will go and let that person know that they have a problem with them. That's the 24-hour rule. And, And I know that can be hard, so you can just blame me. Anytime you're brought into an unholy trinity, you can just blame me. Pastor Rodney said, you've got 24 hours or I'm going to go talk to that person. Can you imagine the reputations that would be saved if we did that? Can you imagine the slander that would be averted? Can you imagine how much more peace we would all enjoy if we abided by that? The 24-hour rule. We can be a peace faker. We can be a peace breaker. Or here's the third option. We can be a peace maker, a peacemaker. And this is what Jesus has called his church to be, a little outpost of heaven, a foretaste of what life will be like with him forever. And what life will be like with him forever is not faking peace. It's not breaking peace. It is making peace. 
a peacemaker when sinned against, we, don't, we aren't to run from the person and make them, play, make them pay. That's not what a peacemaker does. A peacemaker doesn't run to the person and make them pay. No, a peacemaker runs to the person and aggressively gives them grace. That's a peacemaker. Of the many conflicts that occur in any church, I often just wonder how many could have been solved by two people quickly moving toward Jesus and then toward one another. And you know how many I think would be solved? Virtually all of them. If we would just develop a new habit of peacemaking, moving toward Jesus and toward one another. This is what faith at work looks like. This is faith making us peacemakers. So I want to end with two encouragements, two quick encouragements. Uh, The first encouragement is this week, I want to encourage you to read through our new conflict field guide. We we have been working on this for the last few months. Um, A sister church of ours wrote uh, kind of the bones of it, and we have taken that and modified it to, to fit our church family. And from those who receive our normal communication, it should be showing up in your email inbox this morning. And for those of you who aren't on that normal communication list, uh, you can find that on our website, stonegate.church. You can find the conflict field guide. It's one of the boxes down on our homepage. And here's the homework this week. I'm asking everyone in our church family to set aside a few minutes to read through that conflict field guide. And just there where you are, if you're watching this with other people this morning, I want you to look at somebody else in that room that you're watching uh, this with. And I want you to look at them and just invite them. Look at them and, and say, would you please hold me accountable to reading through that conflict field guide this week. Would you please do that for me? This week, I'm asking everyone in our church family to do that. And if you're currently in conflict, read that slowly. Just allow the Lord to speak to you as you're thinking and, 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 and working out what the Bible has to say about conflict. And if you're not in a conflict right now, it's even a better opportunity for you to take that conflict-filled guide and to read it slowly so that what the Bible has to say about conflict can be seeping into your bones before you need it. That's the best time to read through it. So this week, I'm asking everyone in our church family to read through that conflict-filled guide. And here's the second encouragement. Church, I just want to look at you and encourage you to keep gazing upon our peacemaking God. To keep gazing upon our peacemaking God. Keep turning your attention and fixing your eyes upon the cross of Christ. Think about what happened upon the cross. Jesus offered his very life for enemies. That's what happened. He offered his life for enemies so that every enemy who comes with the empty hands of faith could could have peace with God. That's that's what was accomplished upon the cross of Christ. The, The cross takes the wrath of God and turns it into a welcome for you and I, for all of those who are in Christ. It's amazing to think about Jesus. Jesus didn't come to settle the score with us, but to settle the score for us. So let's keep our gaze turned upon our peacemaking God. Look at Jesus there upon the cross, his hands and side pierced. Those piercings are the price Jesus gladly paid for peace. Gladly paid to make peace between us and God the Father. If you're in Christ, you have never been treated 
as kindly and as gently and as graciously as God has treated you in Jesus. The gospel shows us a savior who does unspeakably great things for unspeakably bad people. That's the amazing announcement of the good news of Jesus. God takes enemies and makes them friends. So let's, let's keep our gaze turned toward our peacemaking God. Because the more you look at him, the more you'll become like him. The more you fix your eyes on Jesus, the more you'll find your heart opening up to those who have hurt you and wounded you. The more you keep your eyes focused on Jesus, the more you'll find yourself praying and blessing those who have hurt you, forgiving those who have hurt you. So Stonegate, let's, let's turn our gaze up at, that, at our peacemaking God because the more we look at him, the more we'll become a place where wonderful things happen to unworthy people. Where, where grace is freely given, where enemies are reconciled. And church, don't we want to be a place like that? I know I do. And so by the grace of God, let's lean in and let faith make us peacemakers. Will you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment there where you are to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful today and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And Maybe one question that you could consider today is, are you at peace with God? We oftentimes sum up the good news of Jesus like this, that we're all idiots. We have an incredibly bright future. And anyone can get in on this. Jesus stands with arms wide open today. Do you have peace with God? If not, this is your day to make a decisive decision for Jesus, to push your life across the line with him, to hold up your life and to say, I am trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to make me right with you, oh God. And for all those who will come to God with the empty hands of faith, God will save, he'll rescue, he'll grant peace into your relationship with him right now, today, as you're listening now and responding. Do you have peace with God? Here's another question to consider is, do you have peace with others? Where is there relational conflict in your life? And wherever those relational wars are, those relational problems are, today is an invitation from Jesus to come to him with those. It's an invitation from Jesus to hold up the mirror of the word in front of your life. To take a good long look over your motives, to ask the Lord for help in seeing what is creating and causing the, these conflicts. Before we get to, to removing their specks, the specks in the eyes of others, to, to make sure the log is out of our own eyes. This is one way that faith works in, in our fights, in, in conflicts. It gives us the willingness to do that sort of work with Jesus. So Father, would you help us today? Father, would you help us see the things about us that we need to see? God, would you, 
Would you allow us to to ask those good, hard, searching questions with confidence, knowing that regardless of what the answers are inside of us and what problems we see inside of us, you still love us. We are still secure in you. So God, would you give us confidence to, to consider these sorts of things? And God, I pray that faith would be working in each of our lives, making us peacemakers. Oh God, would you do that? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.